My name is Zach Thompson, and I am on staff here. And you're a little bit late on that one, but that's okay. <clears throat> uh, I'm on staff here at Calvary, and uh, we are working through the book of Luke together. Uh, we were in Life Group last week, and, and one of the couples there talked about, because of the series that we're in, we're, we're reading a chapter at a time, and, and we aren't able to cover the whole thing when we get here on a Sunday. And so they, they said that they play a little bit of a game together to see who will be right on which passage we are going over. So I'm, I'm excited to see if you are playing that game as well, who was correct that we will be in this part of chapter six together. I encourage you to be playing along as you're reading along with us. Uh, last week, we, we had this incredible call that Jesus gives to his disciples to come and follow him. And we see that they are included in learning from him, of, of being his disciples, of following after him, but they're also included in the work that he is doing, of making more disciples, of bringing this good news to all people. But this isn't some call that's just given to people back when Jesus was on earth, but we are included in it. Christians at all times and all places, which includes this place too, are included in this, to follow him, to be part of the work that he is doing, to make disciples, to help them see this good news that he brings. And yet we can still marvel at some of the reactions that we see back in chapter 5. Simon sees the power and importance of this man, Jesus, with this miraculous catch of fish. And it says in response to that, that he left everything behind and followed Jesus. He left everything behind and followed him. Then we get to Levi. Levi was a tax collector and Jesus says to follow him. And he too leaves everything behind to follow Jesus. How is that possible? How, how can someone seek to follow after him with, with so, much, so much sincerity, with, with so much fullness? How does someone leave everything behind to follow him? Because when I look at my own life, there, there's still so much that, that I'm holding on to. There's, there's ideas, dreams, fantasies of mine that I, I still have and I still hold to. There's still times where I go my own way, think that I know what's best think that I know what to do. There's, there's so much that I'm still holding on to. How does one leave all of that behind to follow Jesus? And yet, as we read through the book of Luke, in particular, as we get to this chapter that we're in today, I think we see that that's the only way of following Jesus, that Jesus impacts everything, every bit of who we are. He's not just something that we stick on to our lives to fill in the cracks or the holes that we think are there. It's not some safety net for us to fall back onto, but Jesus impacts everything. And we see this because of what he does and because of who he is. Now, I know I normally say that phrase in the reverse order because of who Jesus is and what he's done, but our passage today works in that order. What Jesus does and who he is impacts every part of who we are. So we'll start as the text does. What Jesus does. We are able to follow him fully, to leave all other things behind and follow him because of what he does. Specifically here, bringing in this new era, this new way in what he is doing. Last week when we were in chapter 5, I started things off by going to chapter 6. So it only seems fair and starting chapter five, or chapter six, to go back to chapter five. 
And if you're confused by that, clearly I am as well. But if nothing else, we can pick it up in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Luke 5, 33. And they said to him, that's Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Jesus impacts every part of who we are because of what he does. And he's talking here about this new era, this new way that he is ushering in. The setting of this is is this discussion of fasting. Why are your disciples not fasting? So fasting uh, was and is to this day something that's given as a as a way to avoid or stop doing something. Throughout the Bible, it's it's food to stop eating food for a specific time for a specific purpose. This was a time to worship God, to follow Him in obedience, because the Old Testament calls for people to fast, to do this thing. So it's a way of worshiping Him, of being obedient to Him. And so this question of, why aren't you doing it? It seems like a fair question. If the Bible says to do it, if the other religious leaders at the time are doing it, the disciples of John, the Pharisees are fasting twice a week, why aren't you and your disciples, Jesus? It's a fair question. But there's another layer to it as well. Israel is in the midst of a tumultuous history. God called them to be his chosen people. He gave them land, and then Israel fought against each other, and now the nation, and then the nation was divided. Then comes year after year, war after war. These foreign conquerors come. These foreign nations come, and they're conquered, then they're freed, then they're conquered, then they're freed, and then they're conquered. And all the while, we're, we're seeing God is, uh, is calling for them to be obedient, and then they aren't. And so he's using, uh, he has used in the past some of these conquering nations as a way to bring judgment and justice upon his people. And now they're, once again, have this foreign oppressor on them. And all the while, every single time that these outside influences come, it leaves a little bit of a mark on them. If God has used foreign nations in the past to judge his people, and now there's a foreign nation judging them, Are we in that same spot? Has our disobedience got us to this point? Are we at danger? Are we at risk of being like what our ancestors were, where they did not follow God, and this was the result? In the midst of these influences coming on, will we be faithful, or will we turn away from God more? And so these markers of the faith, these signs of trusting in God, become all the more important. It's not just that the Old Testament said, uh, uh, keep this fast, but now it is this fast, the marker, the sign of following God, becomes so much more significant. Because in the midst of these forces, the midst of these foreign nations, the midst of these influences coming in, I am demonstrating my obedience. 
I am demonstrating my faith in this very visible and very sacrificing way. But when these markers start to become important, we see some other parts that come with it too. It's not just, am I following God? Am I being obedient? But if you're not doing this, if you're not as faithful like I'm faithful, well, clearly you have no respect for God. You're not worshiping him. You're not following him. The sign, the marker, becomes more important than the actual thing. Uh, Let me try to explain this. Um, So I know some of you in here are fans of our local NFL team, the Denver Broncos. I assume because you like pain and disappointment. Uh, but there are different ways to, to be a fan of this team. You could watch the games from home, or, or maybe it's just keeping up with the scores you check after the game. Maybe, maybe you get to go to a game on occasion, uh, obviously when it doesn't conflict with going to church, uh, obviously. Or, or you could be one of those diehard fans. They know everything about the team. They never miss a game. They're the head-to-toe painted orange fans. It looks like a fun way to show your devotion to this team. You love them, and you're, you're showing that with your whole self. But then what if fandom starts to drop off a little bit? Like, hypothetically, the team misses out on the playoffs for six consecutive seasons. And so your fandom starts to wane a little bit. People are, are less devoted to the team as before. I mean, they might bring in a player that gets a little bit of excitement, but then when the results start to drop off as any adversity is faced, well, it seems to be just more of the same. And people are less devoted. In fact, they're starting to show more attention to some other team in the city, one that may have won a championship recently. Uh, Again, all of this is hypothetical. And so fandom is draining. And what a a fan like those head-to-toe orange-painted fans might do, they might double down. They might see themselves as holding on, the real true fans, the model of what it means to support this team. All of you guys who are turning to other things, you're not the real fan. Only real fans are doing what I'm doing. If you are truly a fan of this team, you need to be just like me. Otherwise, you don't even care about them. Otherwise, you're not part of it. If you're not like me, you're not part of this thing. And that's what we see with with what's happening with fasting. It's this sign, this marker that takes on more significance than the actual things. We see the Pharisees here painted head to toe in orange paint with a letter on their chest, G, O, and D. They're showing what absolute devotion is for this thing. And if you are not like them, if you're not as devoted as they are, well, clearly you're not part of it. Clearly you're not following God. Clearly you're not as reverent as I am. And yet what's happening in this is they're using fasting as the sign of if you're in or out, if you're obedient or not, if you're following God or not. When they're using this, they're missing the heart of what fasting was given to be. Fasting is is the setting, as we said, it's, it's denying of food. This is to show our dependence upon God that uh, we are more dependent on him than anything else. And so it's not eating for a set amount of time. I I don't know if you realize this or not, but if we don't eat, we die. And and so we're pretty dependent upon food. And so what fasting is doing, it's saying, God, I am more dependent on you than even food. I'm more reliant on you than anything else. And so I'm giving up something that I need to live to show my, my, my need for you. 
But fasting is also this time of mourning, that this is a world that's, that's full of toil and pain that's, that's broken. And so fasting is, is willingly feeling the pain, uh, the hunger pains that we would have to show that we are longing for the day when God restores things, when he makes things new. It is a way of praying, of pleading out, God, please fix things. Fasting shows our dependence, but also our desire for God to act and work and do something in this world. And Jesus comes and he says, why aren't my disciples fasting? Well, Jesus is fulfilling all the longing that fasting uh, announces. So the the mourning piece, the God, when will you act? Jesus is is right there. He's doing all that those who fast long uh, long for God to do. Jesus has announced that he has come to bring, uh, to set at liberty the captives, to bring good news to the, uh, to the poor, to, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to bring sight to the blind, to announce the year of the Lord's favor. All that we long for in fasting, Jesus is accomplishing. And our dependence on God, the reminder of that, well, we don't need to be reminded of our need for God. God's standing right there. Jesus is God who drew near to us. All that is longed for in, in fasting is being accomplished here by, this, by Jesus. And he gets to this with this talk of the bridegroom. He says, you don't fast while the bridegroom is here. And you don't use a wedding as a time of mourning, as a time of longing for something else. It's, it's a time of celebration. I mean, I mean, think about it. When we get a wedding invitation in the mail, we don't, we don't question, like, is it the chicken or the fish or do I skip food and use it as a time of mourning and longing for something else? Like, that would be ridiculous. You get the chicken and the fish, obviously. No, but it's not a time of longing for something else. It's not a time of mourning. It's a time of celebration. Jesus is here, God who is drawn near. It's not a, a time for fasting. It's a time of celebrating. And then he, he shows why this is with this parable of this new era he's bringing in the discussion of garments and wineskins. He first talks about these garments that when, when there's a hole, you don't, you don't rip off a new cloth. You don't take some new fabric to patch this hole. For one, you just ruin that new garment that you just had uh, to, to fix something that was old. But, but also, as you wash this old garment with the new patch on it, well, the new patch is going to shrink. The old garment, well, it's already pretty shrunk. It's not going to go anywhere. But when you shrink something here, It's going to pull away at the old garment, and it's going to waste this new garment, waste this patch, and destroy the old garment as it shrinks. Same thing with the new wine and old wineskins. New wine is fermenting, and it's releasing gases. It's stretching out its container. And as that happens, well, the old wineskin has nowhere to go. It's already stretched out, and so it's going to burst as the wine gets wasted, and the the wineskin is broken. It's useless now. He gives this illustration of this new has come. He has come. He is announcing this good news. And because of that, this new era is here, this new way of relating to God, this, this new way to be faithful to him. Now, I don't fully have time to make this point, and so I'm going to make it insufficiently uh, uh, and, and over a very short amount of time, which is probably just going to leave more questions than answers, which, which I think is the best use of, of me being up here. So uh, when we look at this, uh, Jesus saying, this new way has come, this new way is here, it might make us start to look at the old way and think that it's useless, 
that as Jesus arrives, he's in the New Testament, he's bringing this new way. Well, we might look at what's in the old way and think, well, there's no value here. There's laws, there's things to do. It's talking about a nation that I'm not part of. It's not really valuable, but that's not what's going on here. In fact, you read through the book of Luke so far. Luke is trying very hard to make it clear that Jesus is not some new plan. He, it isn't God looking down and seeing his people rebelling from him. It's, it's seeing his people uh, go in opposite directions. He's like, well, what's plan B going to be? Oh, I know, Jesus. That's not it whatsoever. Luke is showing very clearly that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan that goes from even the beginning. So what's the point of, of uh, the Old Testament? What's the point of the law that's there? Well, it's pointing towards Jesus. It's not done away with here. But when Jesus talks about this new way coming, this new era that's here, he's showing that it's through him that we have closeness to God. It is through him that we relate to him. It's through him that we're saved, that obedience is done by following Jesus more than following anything else. Good news is here. But, this is where the old wineskins come in, but if we are trying to maintain how things were done before, if we're trying to, to hold on to, to uh, what, what we think were practices beforehand, if we're, if we're just trying to stick Jesus onto our lives as we are living them, if we think that Jesus is just some patch, if, if we think that we can continue living in the way that we were after Jesus, well, we're mistaken. New wine must go in new wineskins. New garments must go on new garments if we are trying to maintain the way that we're living and just stick Jesus onto it, well, it's going to end in destruction. Now, before we gloat to these people who are holding on to fasting in this way and we're thinking, yeah, how can you even think that? I, I'm going to restate it. We can't maintain the way that we're living and just stick Jesus on and think that things are okay. We can't. We can't just add Jesus on to our lives and think that that's good enough. We can't just stick him on like he's a sticker or a patch. We can't just use him to fill the gaps of our lives and, and think that that is what it means to be living after him. No, Jesus takes over everything. Everything that Jesus comes into contact is changed. As we are trusting in him, as we hear the call to follow him, how do we leave everything behind and follow him? Well, there is no other way. Jesus impacts every part of who I am. How do I define success? That is now changed because of Jesus. What is my purpose? What is my source of joy? What is my call in life? How do I spend my time? How do I treat people who are like me? How do I treat people who are different than me? What am I, do I hope for? What am I passionate about? All of these are changed because Jesus has come. He's brought this new way in. New wine is here. A new garment is here. And that changes everything. And this was the quotation of verse 39. No one after drinking the old wine desires new, saying, uh, well, the old is good. What this is essentially saying is like, well, what we had, is, it's good enough. It's good enough. No, it's not. 
Something new has come, and it's wonderful because it's only in Jesus that we have, offered, have been offered this life. It's only in Jesus that we have any sort of rescue. It's, it's only in Jesus that we see this hope and this, uh, this, uh, this joy and this peace that's on offer, that Jesus is the fulfillment of thousands of years of longing. Jesus is the answer to the question that's been asked for all time of God, when will you act? It has happened. It is here. Jesus has come, bringing in this new way, and that changes everything. When we have baptisms here, we, we ask people the question of, well, what was your life like before Jesus, and what is your life like now that you have Jesus? And, and the idea is that as we are trusting in him, as we are following him, why someone wants to get baptized is it's this announcement that Jesus has come, and he's changed who I am. He, he's changed me for the good. I was lost, but now I am found. But it's the same question that we might need to be asking ourselves. What's the difference in my life now that I have Jesus? And if the answer is just, well, I have Jesus, we have some bad news coming. We may not realize it, but the garment is ripping. That the wineskin is about to burst. Because Jesus, he impacts every bit of who we are because of what he's done. He's brought in a new way. There's no just sticking him onto our life. There's no using him to fill cracks. He changes everything because of what he does. And Jesus changes everything because of who he is. He's the bridegroom, the long-awaited one, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. We had read for us Luke 6, 1 through 11 earlier. And, and in that, we see these two controversial times where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they accuse him of, of breaking the Sabbath. There's the picking of food on the Sabbath and then the healing of the man with a withered hand, both of which the Pharisees say, you have broken the Sabbath. The Sabbath goes all the way back to the beginning God created the world and everything in it. And then Genesis 1 tells us that on the seventh day, he rested. Now, God never tires. He has no need for rest, but he does this for a couple reasons. One, it shows us that his work is completed. But two, it models for us to operate in a similar way, to take rest to recharge, to take the Sabbath, that we are finite beings. We cannot just go, go, go. One way or another, we're going to rest. Either we do so willingly or our body will shut down and force us to rest. And so out of a mercy to us, out of God's kindness to us, he, he tells us to take the Sabbath, to take this time of rest. And in so doing, it's also another reminder of our dependence on God, our trust in him. I am not working on this day. God, I'm relying on you. I'm trusting on you that I will have enough by sitting this, uh, this day out from work. And, and what we do is we fill that time then with worship of him. So the Sabbath was given as a mercy from God, as a reminder of our reliance on him, as a time to worship and respond to all that he's done, all of his graciousness and his goodness. That, that's why the Sabbath was given. But again, this is a time in Israel's history where they are being oppressed. They have this foreign ruler, and they look back through what God spoke in the Old Testament, and we see punishment being used, punishment for not keeping the Sabbath. 
And so now, it, at, at Jesus' time, there's that wondering of, are we going through the same thing? Is that what's happening here? So we need to keep this marker. We need to keep this sign of faithfulness. Like with fasting, Sabbath becomes this incredibly significant sign of faithfulness. We need to keep it. Absolutely no work is to be done on the Sabbath. Well, what is classified as work? What's work and what's, what's not working? I mean, I want to keep this sign. If, if this is, is such an important thing, I don't want to be breaking the Sabbath, so how do I know if I am? What is work? So some of Israel's leaders try to help clarify this because there, there's lots of questions to be had from that. We're told to keep the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath, and keep it holy, but what does that mean? So some of Israel's religious leaders come up with page after page, command after command, to make sure that no work is done or nothing even close to work is being done. And I mean in excruciating detail. There's this whole section on throwing rocks. When does throwing a rock become work? How far does it need to go? But then what if it rolls? But what if it rolls backwards? Or what if you're not on land? What if you're throwing a rock from a boat to the sea? But what if you're in the sea throwing a boat, uh, rock to the boat? Uh, all of these details are given of what is work and what is not work on a topic like throwing a rock. All of this is given command after command to make sure you get nowhere close to breaking the Sabbath. All of these commands to follow to make sure that you are keeping this sign. You are keeping this marker. But it misses what the heart of the Sabbath was. It was meant as a time of rest, of worship, of reliance on God. It was never meant to be a hindrance of helping others. It was, it was meant to refresh more than it was to restrict. It was meant for worship, not for worry. Am I doing this enough? Am I doing this right? I absolutely love this quote from J. Ellsworth Callis. He says, The gift of the Sabbath looks too good to be true. Why would God want to do something so utterly kind? And so we look for some meanness in the graciousness of God. And finding none, we impose our own. Clearly what the purpose of the Sabbath is, to, is to make sure I never break it. That's, that has to be the purpose. God must be punishing us for, for getting close, for having one toe over, line, over the line. That, that must be what it is. And we can be a little bit gracious towards the Pharisees, I think, in this. That they're not always the, the obvious evil at all times. They, they are seeing their nation conquered, ruled by foreign oppressors. They're seeing their identity being lost, their faithfulness, uh, the faithfulness of their people not being kept. And so they take this Sabbath and they place an importance on it, which, which is fine and good, but they take something that was meant to be a mercy, meant to be grace, and they turn it into a law. Or more accurate to say, they take something that was God's, that was given by God, that was out of worship for God, and by adding these additional laws to it, additional rules, they change its purpose, they change its meaning, and they make it theirs. By adding all this to it, it's no longer what God gave, what his intention was. They make it theirs instead, as they're the ones who say whether you're right or you're wrong. They're the ones who say whether you're keeping it 
or you're not. And, and Jesus gets to this with his response, with the, the picking of food to eat, which was v- absolutely allowed throughout the Old Testament uh, to, to go and pick food in this way. But the, the Pharisees are saying, you're breaking the law to do this. Well, Jesus quotes from 1 Samuel 21 and, and explaining why it's allowed. And it's this really fascinating quotation from the Old Testament. I, I wish we had time to get into detail on it. So we'll just, again, we'll go inappropriately fast through it. Uh, so uh, 1 Samuel 21, we see King David, who God has picked to rule over his nation, Israel. King David is not happily on a throne. Instead, the previous king is trying to kill him. And so David is on the run. He's fleeing for his life. He's tired. He's hungry. And he arrives before this priest and he says, do you have any food uh, for, for me and my men? But the only food that's there is the bread of the presence. And I know we've had a lot of terms. There's Pharisees, there's Sabbath, there's fasting. Now, bread of the presence, I, I get it. So we'll, we'll simplify it. All you need to know about the bread of the presence is it was put in offer in, as an offering, as a worship, as a sacrifice to God. And then afterwards, the priests and only the priests were allowed to eat that bread. So I'm going to ask you a question. And to make sure that we all get the answer right, I'm going to tell you the answer from the beginning. The answer is going to be no. Okay? The answer is going to be no. Here's the question Was David a priest? I was curious if you thought it was a trick question. It's not. No is the correct answer. So, was David allowed to eat the bread of the presence? Less confident when I don't give you the answer in advance. No, he is not allowed to eat this bread whatsoever. He is not a priest. He cannot eat this bread. There is punishment, severe punishment for breaking this law. But David doesn't experience that. It's not a sin for him to do this. It was okay because of his deep, desperate need. And for that need to be met, well, that was appropriate. It wasn't sin. There was no punishment for him. And so Jesus uses this argument from the greater to the lesser, where he says, if David was able to do this out of his great need and find no punishment, how much more is it okay for these disciples to do this lesser thing of eat, to pluck grain on the Sabbath? This argument from the greater to the lesser. It's a really fascinating use of the Old Testament. He he has a a fascinating argument in the next section. This man with this withered hand is there, which is a debilitating injury, but it's not life-threatening. Jesus could wait a day and heal the next day, but he chooses not to. He chooses to show love and mercy to this man, and he sees it as appropriate through this argument in in, uh, chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Okay, so a little bit confusing there. So essentially the question is, uh, he's saying, so it's wrong to do harm on the Sabbath, right? We would say that's a bad thing to be doing, to do harm to someone on the Sabbath. It's wrong to take someone's life to kill someone on the Sabbath, right? We, We would all say that's probably not a good thing to be doing. So if those are the wrong things to be doing, well, then it must be right to do the opposite of them. If it's wrong to do harm, then it must be right to do good. If it's wrong to take a life, then it must be right to uh, to save a life. You see that argument from if it's the bad thing to be doing, then doing the opposite of it must be the right thing to be doing. And he heals this man on the Sabbath without punishment, without it being sin, 
because he is helping meet this deep need of this man. And how do we know that was the case? How do we know that he is able to do this? How do we know that he is right about what is the proper use of the Sabbath? Well, it's because of who he is. He's bringing, he, he is the one who brings in this, this new way. He's the one who is the bridegroom who has come. He is bringing good news for all people. But we see more than that. We see who he is in verse 5. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is a phrase that he uses about himself. So he's saying here, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Who is Jesus to say what's right and wrong on this day? Who is Jesus to say what's the the right use of the Sabbath? Who is Jesus to say it's okay to pick this grain? It's okay to heal this day? Well, he is Lord of the Sabbath. It's his. It's his to do what he wants with. And he demonstrates this by healing the man with a withered hand. If it's sin to do on this day, he's not going to be able to heal him. God's not going to work through him to do something that's wrong, but he heals this man demonstrating that he is who he says he is. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Who are the Pharisees to add all these extra laws? Who are the Pharisees to take this mercy that's given to us from God and add to it, to add requirements, to shift it to be this marker, this sign of holiness, this sign of purity and piety? Who who are they to add and change the meaning of this thing of the Sabbath? And again, I'm not asking these questions to lump uh, any sort of cruelty on the Pharisees. Instead, to help us realize how similar we are. That we operate as if we have a greater say than we do. That we have a bigger piece of control than we actually have. That we have the ability to dictate what happens in our lives and the lives of others. That we are the ones who get to say what is right and what is wrong on an occasion. I think of how we might, or people that we know do, uh, someone called them uh, piety tests. So questions or things that we observe about people to see, are they faithful? Are they truly following God? Are they truly obedient? Are they really Christians? That if you uh, answer in the right way, you are. And if you answer in the wrong way, you're clearly not. Are you in or you out? Are you spiritual or not? Are you a Christian or you're not? So uh, let, let me talk about what I mean. Um, who did you vote for? What, what do you think about this group, this movement, this act? Who do you read? Oh, you read his works? She's on your bookshelf? How do you spend your time? What do you watch? Do you drink? Where do you get your news from? And you see, your answer to that question, oh, it tells me all I need to know about you. Because if you, uh, it tells me if you're in or you're not, if you're a Christian or you're not. In means, what a coincidence. You answer in the exact same way that I do. Out means you said something different, and that means you're different. Now, certainly, in, in these ways, there's, there's uh, plenty of ways that people could sin with different uh, usage of these things, but is it, is it holding people to the standard that the Bible clearly speaks about, or do I get to be the one who says what's right and what's wrong? 
Am I the metric and the ruler that says if you're faithfully following or not? Am I making myself as the one who gets to say what's right or wrong on a topic? Because if we are, then we, like the Pharisees, will realize that we are not the standard of which all others are judged. We are not the ones who get to assess whether someone is in or out. We are not the ones who are called Lord over anything. It is solely because of Jesus that he has this role. It is the one who is called Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of all things, who gets to be the one who speak into it. That if we try to take this, this position for ourselves, we are, we are sending ourselves and others astray like the Pharisees were. It is not because of who I am, but solely because of Jesus is, uh, who he is, that he gets this role. That Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who calls us to follow him. Jesus and Jesus alone calls us to be obedient in him. Jesus and Jesus alone calls us to life and joy and peace and love and mercy. And faithfulness is up to Jesus and Jesus alone to determine. And this happens because of who Jesus and Jesus alone is. As Simon sees this Jesus, he leaves everything behind to follow him. Levi sees this Jesus, he leaves everything behind to follow him. How is this possible? How is this devotion possible to fully be following him? Well, it is, in fact, the only way to follow him. Because of what Jesus does, he's brought in this new way. It changes every bit of us, every part of who I am. There's no patching holes. He takes over everything with what he's done. And he does so because of who he is. He alone is Lord. He alone is the awaited one. He alone is the one who's able to do this work. And that shapes every bit of who we are. And yet we still trick ourselves into settling for less, settling for things that I can make, settling for a way that I think is right. We, we trick ourselves into thinking that this is something better when, when nothing that I can create, nothing that I can offer is better than what Jesus has here, where I try to take his role. I try to take my works and say that they're better. And yet when I look at myself, I second-guess myself for second-guessing myself. I will be in the car after the service and, and say really cruel and mean things about myself because I, I feel I didn't do enough today or do something good enough or something that could have been better. Uh, I'll look at, man, minute 15 of first service, I said this thing and I could have done it so much better or I skipped half the paragraph that I was supposed to say and, and I'll, I'll be frustrated at, at my inability to do even that. Or uh, I have this uncanny uh, gift to take something that's good and whole and complete and break it. So why do I think that my way could be better? Why do I think that the things that I'm still holding on to are better than what Jesus has on offer? That when Simon sees him, when Levi sees him, when the man with the withered hand sees him, they see that Jesus alone is worthy of following, that Jesus impacts everything, that all other things that we could create or offer or hold on to or think are better, they all fall short of the one who can do all this work, the one who is truly Lord. And he is the one who's worthy of being followed, which is the rest of chapter 6. You read through it, it's what does it look like to follow him? What does obedience to Jesus look like? Well, that's the rest of chapter 6. But it all comes after the fact that he shows what he has done. 
He shows who that he is and how that shapes everything, that changes every part of all of us, that he, as this loving God who did not allow Simon to continue to fish, but instead be part of this incredible work that he's doing. He, as this loving God who called Levi from this exploitative, pain-causing role that he was in and instead be part of this mercy and grace of bringing good news to others, that he, as the Jesus who saw this man with the withered hand and said, not one more moment will go by where your life is full of pain and hurts and the ability to work and instead rescues him from that. That same Jesus who loves us will not allow us to continue thinking that we know it's better. We have this better plan because he lovingly shows us what he has done, who he is, and this way that's for our good and for his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that you have come. Jesus, as God who has drawn near, the long-awaited bridegroom, God who has come. That we are people trying to find direction, trying to find a way, trying to find something to hold on to, some joy, some hope, some peace to be found in this world. And yet what we can create, what we can offer, what leaves us so unsatisfied, it needs replenishing. It takes us in places that we would never want to be at. And yet you have come. Jesus, who shows us the way that good news is on hand, a new way is here, a way to be close to you, a way to find joy and hope and peace, a way to find life and rescue from this world that we're in that you have come and you've done all this. And you're able to do all this because of who you are. And that as people, we are given the same call to follow you, and yet we still keep our hand on things behind us. Still keep a hold on things that are lesser. And yet you are the Jesus who impacts every bit of who we are. Every part of us is shaped because we see you. We see what you've done. We see your love. We see what you have, uh, have been. Oh, we see what you are. And that causes us to loosen that grip. Causes us to, too, leave everything behind and follow you. Causes us to trust you and worship you and celebrate. The bridegroom has come. Let us see you more clearly. Let us follow you because that is what you've called us to do. That is what you've enabled us to do by coming to rescue us. So it's to you that we pray.